You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 20th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Leaders arrive in Reykjavik for the Arctic Circle Assembly and China flexes its muscles at the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm Guy Delaunay. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Guy Delaunay. We've had by-elections in Britain and polls at the polls already this week. Now brace yourselves for the Arctic Circle Assembly. The Monocle team is on the ground and quite possibly on the ice. Also on the way, elections ahoy in Argentina. Vladimir Putin hits the Belt and Road in Beijing. And is it art? Probably not, if it's in the late Silvio Berlusconi's collection. Stay tuned, all that and quite possibly more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. As promised, this is the Monocle Daily and I'm Guy Delaunay. We begin today in Iceland, where the Arctic Circle Assembly is in full flow, but there's at least one notable absentee. Russia's been frozen out, given the cold shoulder due to their invasion of Ukraine. But there are participants from other countries with Arctic interests, everywhere from Iceland to Finland, as you'd expect, and also Canada to Korea which isn't an obviously Arctic nation, but at least it's taking an interest. While Monocle's team has been keeping up with all the hot news from this sub-zero patch, including the person who usually sits in this chair, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Greetings, Andrew. Uh, Greetings, Guy, from a different chair. From a different chair. A different chair in a different room in a different country, Andrew. How are things in Reykjavik? Uh, Things are, well, they're extremely rainy and very windy, but that is to be expected (laughs) if if one comes to Reykjavik uh, in, uh, well, at this time of year. But the the conference has been really interesting. It's been been pleasantly low-key, as you would expect uh, a conference conforming to the stereotypes of the Nordic peoples to be. But, But there is an edge to this, as people have told us there was last year, in that the fact that nobody's really speaking to Russia anymore does massively... Uh, recalibrate relationships around the North Pole. The event, as as it is, I mean, I was looking through some of the agenda. You've got a lot of uh, sort of talking shops, a lot of academics, a lot of ideas floating around there. Are there there any leaders as well who are sort of able to uh, maybe talk about these ideas about how can we talk about the Arctic without including Russia? (laughs) Um, The the, the kind of cast of people you mentioned are very much the ones that generally make this event up. The Icelandic Prime Minister uh, did, of course, speak, and we uh, ourselves interviewed the the President of Iceland on Wednesday morning. Uh, The Arctic is the Arctic Circle Assembly sort of works as kind of an adjunct to the Arctic Council, which is where all the big decisions get made. And that is the one uh, where the presidents and prime ministers en masse do turn up. But we we did speak earlier today to uh, Iceland's uh, very new prime minister, Bjarni Benediktsson, uh, who has previously served as Iceland's finance minister and indeed as Iceland's prime minister. Uh, And yeah, he he did say very much that this is uh, pretty much the future now, that the idea of 
Arctic exceptionalism, they used to call it, this idea that the countries of the Arctic could still agree on dealing with Arctic stuff, even if they couldn't agree on anything else. Uh, that was pretty much over because Russia, as far as everybody else is concerned, has stepped so far beyond the pale of acceptable behaviour. When I was looking at the participants, uh, where the people are from at any rate, I mean, obviously, Iceland, Finland, Canada, you'd expect. I mean, those are countries which actually... Is Iceland, upon my geography, is it actually in the the Arctic Circle? Uh, just technically uh, Iceland. There is one part of Iceland, Grimsey Island, north of Akureyri, which is right on uh, the Arctic Circle. Knowledge which did come in handy last night at an Arctic-themed <laughs> quiz that was held uh, for the guests. They, they asked the apparent trick question, how many people in Iceland live inside the Arctic Circle? The people who went zero were wrong. The people who said about 80, i.e. our team, were right. So ah. I, Iceland, I, Iceland is very much Arctic-adjacent. Uh, I think they would. I think they'd be happy with that characterization. It's interesting you raised the quiz because I've I've heard that, <laughs> that, that the performance of the Monocle team, that question aside, may not have been all that. Uh, no, no, we we got walloped. Uh, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. We we did not actually come last, and and there was a certain amount of bitterness about the phrasing of a couple of the questions. I I don't think you would live long on the difference between the Bering Strait and. Bering Strait, but ah. you know we, we, we've we've learned to be philosophical about such setbacks, as any good pub quiz would be. Was it a pub quiz style? I mean, I know that Icelandic beer is famously uh, furiously expensive. <laughs> no, it was it was it was all extremely high tech. There was there was a QR code and an app involved, and there were things on a screen. That doesn't sound like much fun. <laughs> uh, it, it it would have been if we'd done better. Indeed. Uh, so you missed out on that prize, but. The, the the prize you can win right now, Andrea, and it's not much of a prize, really, um, but it's, it's the right to tell me why on earth countries like Korea and Singapore, which are not, let's face it, obviously Arctic, are taking an interest. Oh, they're not even, they are not even slightly Arctic, but they are taking an interest. We spoke this morning to Sim An, uh, who is uh, Singapore's Senior Minister of State for Foreign Affairs and National Development. We will be speaking tomorrow to uh, Park Chung-suk, who is South Korea's Ambassador for Arctic Affairs. Uh, they very much think this matters. Uh, the Koreans in particular do run scientific uh, exploration and scientific research in the Arctic. Uh, but Singapore put it, you know, really quite plainly. They said that we are a small island country, uh, much of which is very, very close to sea level. Uh, and if that sea level comes up, that has a direct effect on us. Um, and we did talk a bit as well about the commercial interests or commercial concerns Singapore might have as a great shipping hub if these much anticipated new routes through the Arctic uh, do open up. I mean, there has also been an amount of scepticism expressed here about that. People are saying that, you know, for it's, it's decades until the idea of regularly running shipping through the North Pole is, is, is not more trouble than it's worth. But yeah, for countries like Singapore and for countries like Korea and Japan, who are also represented here, uh, it does really reinforce that, well, at, at, least, um, you know, at least one guest has put it to us, what, what happens in the Arctic doesn't necessarily hmm. stay in the Arctic. That was exactly the line I was thinking of. You just <laughs> shot my fox, Andrew. It's very naughty. When are we going to hear all this stuff on Monocle Radio? Um, well, there will be a special episode of the Foreign Desk, uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, and there will be uh, some of the many interviews we've done here will be appearing across uh, Monocle's program over the com programming rather over the coming couple of weeks. So what we've done now is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Hey, you worked for some time on that, didn't you? I've got applause from Carlotta. Over the spur of the moment thing, I assure you, Andrew, that was a spur of the moment thing. Um, enjoy the rest of your time in Reykjavik. And thanks for joining us, Andrew Muller. listening to the Monocle Daily and I am Guy Delaunay. And it's been a big week for elections already with votes in Poland and Britain both indicating significant shifts in those countries. And Argentina is about to get in on the act with its presidential poll. The incumbent, Alberto Fernandez, is not running for re-election and that's left the contest, well, according to the things I've read anyway, fairly wide open uh, with potential winners from the Peronist centre-left and the populist far-right. Uh, this is just the first round coming up this Sunday. Is that right, Alex? Yes, that right. will be the uh, first round. And Alex, uh, who I'm talking about right now, this is Monocle's Alex de Royer, who uh, knows a lot more about the Argentinian presidential elections than I or indeed anybody else in the studio does. Welcome, <laughs> Alex. Um, first of all, I mean, we, we've got uh, this fairly open field. What, can I just ask, why isn't Fernandez running? Is, uh, what's the reason for that? So Fernandez is not running for many reasons. I think one of them is the dire economic situation of Argentina for the past four years. And I think uh, another one is just uh, he has a strategy of not continuing to politicize the country with Peronism and Kirchnerism and to look for other alternatives for himself, I think more in the international realm. Um, And he just wants to open space for a fresher, newer candidate such as uh, Sergio Massa. Okay. And we do have this uh, field which we described as, as, as fairly open. Are we expecting anybody to win in the first round? So, uh, for me, it would be quite a surprise that uh, I think the leading candidate here, Javier Millet, wins in the first round. But it is always possible. Um, I think, yeah, it will be a surprise if it happens. But I think um, the, probable, the most probable outcome will be a second round. Uh, in November 19th. So at the moment, we have three candidates that I that I know of who've been raised as being sort of the prominent candidates. So we've got, uh, you just mentioned, Javier Millet, who is, as I understand it, something of a, a populist, rightist figure, uh, which sounds a bit too reasonable when you put it in those terms. <laughs> um, Sergio Massa, who is uh, from the uh, Peronist Party, and then a third candidate, Patricia Bullrich, um, whom I know very little about, but is a centre-right as well. Patricia Bullrich is in the centre-right, and she is the leader of the current main opposition, Juntos por el Cambio. And she has just opened um, her team to her runner-up in the primary elections, uh, Horacio Rodriguez Larreta, to the centre-right or centre-left as well. So why is it, you talk about um, Javier Millet as being the, the, the leading candidate as we go into the first round. Why is he appealing to the electorate more than the candidates of the centre-left and the centre-right? Well, because Millet proposes a radical change, for example, in the economy. He proposes the dollarization of the economy. Uh, the taking down of uh, the central bank. Uh, so he is very appealing, I think, to the youth, uh, mostly, because he's the only one that has never been in power before and promises uh, new economic opportunities uh, and promises uh, a structural change 
in Argentina. I mean, uh, pardon me, but I've read the script before and I know how it plays out. I mean, I'm stunned and amazed that, uh, you know, let's face it, the people of, of Argentina are a fairly sophisticated lot and they've seen what's happened in Brazil. They've seen what's happened in the United States. They've seen what's happened in, say, Venezuela, where you've had similar kinds of populist leaders making similar kinds of promises and, you know, not just not delivering on them, but uh, causing chaos. So why would they be susceptible to Javier Millet's spiel? I think um, because Javier Millet um, sort of grows when inflation grows. And I think they're susceptible to him because they are just fed up with the current uh, outlook and the past 20 years. I think that's the main reason. We've got, um, you know, these two more mainstream candidates that we've mentioned. And often what happens in these sort of elections is you will get obviously Millet as the leading candidate going through to the uh, second round. One of the other two will go through. And then maybe, just maybe, the centre-right and centre-left get their act together and uh, they decide that, uh, you know, anybody but Millet is, uh, is is probably a good thing. Is that on the cards? Well, that's what uh, Sergio Massa is trying to convince. Uh, he's trying to appeal to uh, the centre-right voters of Juntos por el Cambio uh, and to potentially form... Uh, government of national unity with uh, the radicals and the centre-rights represented by Rodríguez Larreta. And bearing in mind that there is, as you say, so much cynicism among the young people of Argentina and you know, the people who want to vote for Javier Millet, how do these establishment candidates, if you like, how are they trying to tackle this cynicism? How are they trying to put themselves across as, I mean, you know, we have in this country Rishi Sunak rather hilariously trying to put himself across as the change candidate. Um, are they uh, are they uh, trying, you know, Sergio Massa or, or, or Patricia Bullrich trying any similar tactics to try and uh, gain the votes in Argentina? Yeah, so Boric is trying to show herself as sort of the Angela Merkel of Argentina. So a change, but with logic, with morals, uh, with order, no chaos. And Sergio Massa on the other side is trying to show himself uh, as somebody that can argue against Millet's hard liberal arguments. Somebody that can sort of show that the state presence is still important, that the institutions are important, and that his party is still important. Is there any sense that things are shifting? I mean, we can actually still, even legally, I think, and in, in, if even, even if we're in Argentina, we could still talk about this today because I don't think the election silence has started yet. But uh, ha- have we seen anything shifting during the campaign? Have, is there any evidence that any of the candidates are actually getting through to the electorate and starting to change hearts and minds? I think there's been a slight change with Bullrich, who is competing internally uh, compared to the other candidates. Uh, And she's opened her cabinet to sort of reopen her coalition to everyone. And uh, she's trying to bet uh, for this as their winning card. I don't think the other two candidates, Millet and Massa, have changed much in the recent weeks. I think they've just sort of uh, clutched down and went on with their similar strategy as before. So I presume we'll know by the Sunday evening who's going to be uh, in the second round. Yeah, yeah, we will. I will be going to the Argentinian consulate and vote on Friday afternoon. And we'll know by Friday evening, I would say by night. Yeah. Okay. And we will wait to hear about that right here on Monocle Radio. Thanks very much for joining us, Alex. Thank you. Guy. 
Now, top officials from some 90 countries gathered in Beijing this week. The guest list even included Russia's President Vladimir Putin making his first official trip abroad since the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for his arrest. So, what tempted him out? An invitation from Xi Jinping for the third Belt and Road Forum. It's China's signature foreign aid initiative and it's marking its 10th anniversary. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs spoke to Bill Bates-Gill from the Centre for China Analysis at the Asia Society. Society to get more information about the celebration. The Belt and Road Initiative was a major undertaking that Xi Jinping you know, announced 10 years ago, and it has become his signature foreign policy initiative, something like a trillion dollars invested, 3,000 projects all over the world, mostly in the developing world. So it's a big deal. He wants to take credit for it. He wants to be able to promote the successes of this major undertaking. And one of the ways that she will be doing this is hosting this month a major forum in Beijing. It's actually the third Belt and Road Forum over the past 10 years. So what we're going to see then is, I think, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of propaganda trumpeting the successes of this major undertaking and how it is an example of China providing global public goods for the most important infrastructural needs in the developing world. What is the actual sense of the 10-year anniversary? Does the CCP internally see this as having been successful? Are there cracks in the the works, as it were? I mean, certainly there have been some, some negative stories, some negative press about countries that are not so keen on the deals they've signed with China. Well, of course, you're not going to hear any official criticism about the Belt and Road Initiative, given its provenance and given the enormous political and economic investment that has been made in its narrative and in its success. And we have to be fair. Obviously, the infrastructural needs are huge in the developing world and elsewhere, for that matter. And to the degree China can contribute to those needs, uh, help improve the livelihoods of, of individuals. You know, the World Bank made an estimate at one point that perhaps 100 or 200 million persons were lifted out of poverty in one way or another or across the world as a result of Belt and Road Initiative projects. So we can't write it off at all as a complete failure. It's not. Among the Belt and Road Initiative's most recent detractors, Italy has been looking for a diplomatic exit from their relationship with with China on this front. How much do these kinds of public rebukes sting for China uh, insofar as the Belt and Road Initiative is in part a a diplomatic play to gain friends and influence around the world. It has to sting somewhat, but the Belt and Road Initiative has been really, from its beginning, largely intended to target the global south, developing world countries in Africa and across Asia, and less so really in Europe. And of course, in these past 10 years, the political relationship uh, between the West, broadly defined, including Europe, and China has steadily deteriorated. And so that even uh, where there might be economic benefit to be derived from Belt and Road projects between European countries, other Western countries, and China, the, the political environment has deteriorated so badly that countries like Italy have pulled out. You may recall a year or so ago, the state of Victoria in Australia was also uh, withdrew its agreement with China on, on Belt and Road Initiative cooperation. So surely it was not China's intention for that to happen, but it was almost inevitable that projects, even economic ones, 
would eventually fall by the wayside as the diplomatic and political relationships turn sour. While we're in the same neighborhood, speaking of South Asia, the Sri Lankan case study, there was a, a port that became something of a poster child of the debt trap risks from engaging in Belt and Road Initiative projects. And there is a litany of bad press on Belt and Road, in at least in non-Chinese media. How is Xi Jinping and his team going about rebranding some of the reputational challenges that Belt and Road is facing? Well, the, the whole meme about a debt trap diplomacy is probably a bit over-exaggerated. However, there have been certain individual cases where that has been a real problem, uh, Sri Lanka being probably the most important example. And it has, I think, tarnished the Chinese brand, tarnished the Belt and Road brand in a way that has spun up much more powerfully and probably does give pause uh, to other countries that may be about to pen a deal with China uh, under the Belt and Road umbrella. So as a result of, of these, this kind of bad press, and not just on the debt trap diplomacy idea, but also in terms of lack of accountability, uh, there's been uh, criticisms around a lack of attention to environmental damage that arises out of some of the major infrastructure projects that China's undertaken. There's obviously also been accusations, some of them I'm quite sure accurate, of you know, corruptive influences, uh, paybacks, kickbacks, and the like. You know, when you're pushing around billions of dollars, that kind of thing surely happens. Or, or simply to buy influence with certain regimes in the developing world. So all of that has um, reflected poorly on the Belt and Road's brand, that's for sure. And what we've seen, though, in the last two years is an effort to uh, subsume, in a way, the Belt and Road within a larger design, uh, which Xi Jinping has termed the Global Development Initiative. And what's different about this? It's different in a number of ways. There's going to be far less involvement of, of Chinese state-owned banks uh, providing financing for Global Development Initiative projects. There's going to be, it seems, a greater degree of grants so the development, the monies will flow in the form of development grants not to be paid back. These are not loans, rather than you know the, the sort of loans that were set up under much of the Belt and Road before that ended up creating problems in terms of, in terms of uh, unsustainable debt. All that said about the waning profile of the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not going away. Let's recall, first of all, its provenance. This was something Xi Jinping put his name on and has promoted uh, fervently for 10 years. So just for that reason alone, it's not going to disappear. But also, secondly, in 2017, the Belt and Road Initiative was actually formally integrated into the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party as being among one of the great accomplishments of the party. So that, too, means that the Belt and Road is not going to disappear. It'll just begin to fade a bit. And that was Bates Gill from the Centre for China Analysis at the Asia Society, and he was speaking to Monocle's Gregory Scruggs. Now then, who's wandered into the studio? It's the deputy editor of Monocle's sister magazine, Confect, Chiara Rimella. Welcome to Studio One of Midori House, Chiara. Always a pleasure. Bless you for coming in. And this is production week for Confect. What are you most excited about in the current, well, the new issue? Uh, there's plenty to be excited about. It's always a bit of a discombobulating experience putting Confect together because you're always living in a different season to what's actually happening outside of the windows. So it's the winter issue and we've gone really in on Christmas, gifts, snow, high altitude. So 
There will be reports from the best alpine resorts you can think of, really cozy inns, amazing recipes for proper festive showstoppers and great fashion from the kind of really nice knitwear to something a bit more special. It's a really, really textured edition. It always has this flair that Confect has to link everything together from society to nature to just things that are beautiful and nice to wear. And I hope that people are going to like it. Quickly, a a favourite fashion piece and a favourite recipe? Well, um, I think there's something on deer saddle that looks very appealing uh, for the festive season. And a fashion piece, God, it's, it's hard to say, but I have a penchant for uh, some hats that are opening the the tone this uh, this edition so you'll uh, have to wait and see for that I'm fond of a hat myself I wonder if you have one for me possibly not but uh, I you shall, can try it I shall look with great interest when that's out uh, but we are actually I mean it's good that you're here because we're, we're heading for your homeland Italy for the next couple of stories and um, as this week and this programme draw to a close, so does the relationship of Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, because she's given her long-term partner, Andrea Giambruno, the heave-ho on the completely reasonable grounds that he's an irredeemable sexist. A Monocle's man in Milan, Europe editor Ed Stocker, can tell us more. They weren't the headlines Giorgia Maloney would have wanted. In the last few days, the Italian Prime Minister's private life has been splashed across TV screens and newspapers... The reason, the behaviour of her controversial partner, journalist and TV presenter Andrea Giambruno. They culminated with Maloney taking to social media this morning to announce a split with her partner of almost 10 years, with whom she shares a daughter, stating they had been on different paths for some time now. Clips of Giambruno have appeared on consecutive evenings of the satirical news show Striscia la Notizia, which airs on the Mediaset network. They show Giambruno, who works for another Mediaset channel, speaking off-air on the set of the news show he presents before official recording has started. Alongside images of him grabbing his crotch, as well as telling a female presenter it's a shame they didn't meet earlier, it's the -the behind-the-scenes audio that stings the most. In it, he tells a woman, can I touch my package while I'm talking to you? To which she responds, you already did it. He continues asking the woman if she wants to be in his work group and goes on to suggest group sex. Giambruno isn't new to controversy, having taken a hard line on migration and suggested that women shouldn't drink if they want to avoid sexual aggression. For now, he has been taken off the air presenting his Diario del Giorno, with some sources suggesting he may soon be sacked. Corriere della Sera newspaper is reporting that there may be more revelations to come. For Monaco in Milan, I'm Ed Stocker. Thank you, Ed. And so uh, Georgia Maloney has defenestrated her partner, who does indeed sound like an irredeemable, sexist, misogynist character. How is this all reflecting on her, though? Because this is her long-term partner, and you would have thought that, you know, come a crisis like this, people could interpret her decision in her personal life one of a number of different ways. 
It's interesting. Her message, when you read it back, what we she posted this morning, um, basically says my relationship with him ends here, um, and that she will maintain a friendship and and that she shares the most important things in her life with him her daughter mm. um, and then at the end she says P.S. Uh, for those who thought or hoped that this would touch me or would I guess um, weaken me in any way uh, I remind them that uh, water might try to erode a stone but a stone remains a stone and water is just a drop which is a bit of a bending of the concept itself. I'm, I've lost that one. Yeah. That's, that's gone. Her metaphor is quite elaborate. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is that she's trying to frame it as a deliberate attack on her, uh, and resisting that. The the papers have obviously led on this for the whole day. It's gone to the top of the news all across the country. What I think is really interesting about the story, though, is that everyone is eulogizing their relationship, talking about how it affects her. But let's take a step back. Not that many people are talking about the fact that this was a case of essential sexual harassment in the workplace, mm. you know? So a lot of people are condemning his actions in terms of his infidelity to her. Um, but there's also another aspect to this, which is the professional aspect. You know, he was doing these things in a workplace at Mediaset, which is one of the biggest, um, you know, broadcasters in the country. Um and I'm waiting to hear what will actually happen to him professionally. Yes, he's been taken off air. It is said that we'll have to, as Zed said, we have to see whether he will be officially sacked. Um, he still has to receive a, a, a proper letter from the employer stating that he has broken the ethical code. I would, you know, suggest that there's probably a bit of a breach there. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at this from the point of view of the relationship that Italy has with um the, the conversation around Me Too and sexist behaviours and sexual uh, harassment allegations, you know, it's time to look at these squarely in the face. Is George Maloney also trying to raise the question of whether a male head of government would have their personal life or their relationship brought into play in this way? Is that what she's suggesting? I think more interestingly, it will be Interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the way that the right wing in Italy has been campaigning for the traditional family. You know, there's there's a number of people in the current government that are part of a you know a divorced family, um, but there is so much emphasis on children needing a dad or a mom, and that is part of the rhetoric that comes out time and time again when this government opposes um, same sex relationships. So I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the image of the family that they're going to be able to continue projecting moving forward. Sounds like she's been hoist by her own petard a little bit. But uh, we have one more thing. Talking about problematic um, problems for leaders and problematic leaders, Silvio Berlusconi. Don't get much more problematic than dear old departed Silvio. And um, he apparently, and I, I do like this story very much, and I'm sure you know a lot more about it than I do, Chiara, but um, apparently he had an enormous collection of art on which he spent an enormous amount of money, about 20 million euros. And there are 25,000 pieces in this art collection. I'm trying to work out how much that would work out per piece. 25,000 for 20 million. My maths, my quick maths isn't fast enough. Um, but apparently it's not particularly valuable. It's going to be extremely hard to shift by the sound of it for his heirs who might have thought, great, we've got this art collection that he spent 20 million on. They're not going to get it back. 
No, I think this is interesting in the great saga that is kind of the succession story of of Berlusconi. Many people have likened it to a kind of a real life succession. And it is, you know, he has bequeathed on his heirs a real empire that spans media, football, uh, cinema, publishing, lots of things. Now this collection has come to light. Um, and as you say, he spent 20 million on it. A, a very famous, prominent art critic in Italy um, has deemed it mostly you know, full of duds. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that he is said to have accumulated the vast majority of it in the later years of his life, so mm. from 2018 onwards, and primarily calling in to TV auctions late at night during sleepless nights. Oh. And I think this image is really worthy of a Sorrentino movie. You know, it really is like that image of the great beauty, the great decadence of this, such an important figure in Italian history and his relationship with popular culture and TV and the fact that he was watching it late as night on his own, buying these really not very good paintings just to stash in this warehouse where he had really a, a great variety of paintings. He had landscapes, he had images of his favourite cities, Milan and Paris. Then he had lots of pictures of naked women, but also religious pictures and pictures of himself. He had oh. self-portraits as well. And, you know, it's such a tragic image. The fact that now his heirs are thinking of getting rid of the vast majority of it because it costs a lot of money to even maintain the warehouse. It's estimated it's 800,000 euros. It is extraordinary. And uh, museums aren't interested in taking these on because, of course, you know, you look at uh, art, art, art galleries and museums and they've always got from the collection of... Uh, so they're not interested in a display from the collection of Silvio Berlusconi. Well, anecdotally, um, one... Because this came out in, in the, uh, a show that's called Report in, in, in Italy. And anecdotally... Uh, one of these art sellers said that he received a call late at night from Berlusconi wanting to buy a painting. It was 150 euros. It's kind of befuddling to think that Berlusconi... It like without... had, it's like he had a bad eBay habit, isn't yeah, it? But it really is. And it really tells you so much about the figure it's himself. You know, this man who wanted quantity, wanted more, more, more up until the end of his life uh, and just wanted to accumulate and self-aggrandize and have pictures of himself. I think it sheds so much life at what he really was and what he meant for the country too. And that is a very profound thought on which to end matters, I think, Chiara. Chiara and Romella, thank you very much for joining us and we're looking forward uh, to reading the new edition of Confect. Now, that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my guests today, not just Chiara, but also Andrew Muller, Alex de Royer and Ed Stocker. Today's show is produced by Carlotto Ribello, researched by Harrison Warlock and sound engineered by Sarah Nicholl. I'm Guy Delaunay here in London. The Monocle Daily is back on Monday. Thanks for listening. 